congregation this morning, I'm sure, that long to be married, and God has not provided a spouse for you. And you're waiting on him and wondering whether you will um, be single all of your life. There are those that have been married and have lost their spouses to divorce and are dealing with the aftermath and the pain of that broken relationship. Uh, There are those that have lost their spouses um, through death, and they've gone to be with the Lord. And as grateful as you are for that truth, uh, the loneliness is so intense. And then there are those that are married and looking for a way out, and those that are married and are grateful for the grace of the Lord. We're, we're all at some place on the continuum, but I want to assure us, Paul's words speak to all of us. Because whether we are married or single, we are called to encourage those who have been given this vocation and to stand with them as they follow the Lord. So listen carefully. Paul's words are God's words for us and directed to all of us, beginning in verse 21. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects husband. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Pray with me. Lord, as we come to this portion of your word, each of us coming out of different personal locations with different hurts and struggles and joys, we pray that your spirit would work by and with your word to renew our hearts, and to increase our vision that we might, as your church, stand together with those called to the vocation of marriage 
and encourage them in their calling before you, our Lord and Savior. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Someone should have mentioned the toothpaste. Uh, we had been through premarital counseling. Uh, we had made a bet budget. Uh, we had talked about all the challenges that come up with raising children, but nobody mentioned toothpaste. Uh, my wife, Kathy, comes from a long line of Dutch Reformed believers who believe that economy is an attribute of Christian discipleship. And they would carefully roll the toothpaste tube from the bottom, getting out every possible bit. Uh, my family of Baptist believers uh, were squeezers going back generations. We would just grab the toothpaste wherever it was and without regard to economy, squeeze it for all it's worth. And in our first months of marriage, it was not theology that we fought about, not politics, uh, not even the challenges of setting up a new household and me starting law school and Kathy starting a new job. No, it was how to deal with toothpaste. And that became a metaphor for the complexity of marriage. Uh, beloved, living together as husband and wife is an exercise in growth and sanctification and certainly learning to know and to love one another well. And sometimes it's confusing, but there is nothing confusing about what God says about marriage in the scriptures. I mention that because we are at a time in our history as the church of Jesus Christ where there is a marked ambivalence towards biblical teaching. And however you factor the divorce rate among believers, and we recognize that there are biblical grounds for divorce. But the rate of divorce among believers, whether or not it's equal to uh, or greater than or less than that of the general population, is too high. It sends the wrong message to the world and to our children and our grandchildren. And the battle overseeing marriage in its biblical context as between one man and one woman mutually faithful for life. Honestly, among millennials, we've already lost that. Millennial evangelicals, 18 to 29, 53% believe that same-sex marriage is biblical. We need to talk more about marriage. We need to think more about our own marriages and how we represent the Lord Jesus in the midst of them. So this morning, three points. A word to the church about marriage, a word to Christian wives, and a word to Christian husbands. First of all, a word to the church about marriage. Paul is concerned uh, that we would understand as we talk about marriage, that it's in the context of verse 21 of mutual submission to Christ and mutual submission to one another within the body of Christ. That participle, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, that carries on through the passage. And it means, if nothing else, that as we approach this topic of life together within the calling of marriage, it means that we approach it with humility. Uh, this is kind of a Philippians 2 moment where you count others better than yourself and see yourself called to emulate the Lord Jesus 
who left his throne in glory and took on a human body and became a servant um, so that we might have life eternal. It involves sacrificial servanthood. And as we talk about marriage, we've got to begin there. Within the various spheres of authority, we are both those who are in authority and those who are under authority. And we get that. We understand that. It's within that context that Paul then begins to talk about the respective duties of wives and husbands. But he also talks um, about a narrative that we often forget. If you look down at verse 31, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This is an echo back to Genesis chapter 2. You remember the story. Adam is in the garden and the Lord looks at him and says, you know, it's not good for man to be alone. I'm going to make a helper corresponding to him. And so then the narrative shifts slightly and the Lord begins possible, brings possible candidates to Adam. And so Adam is looking at these various animals. He's giving them names. He's doing it in Kiswahili because they spoke Swahili in the garden or so my Tanzanian friends told me. And so I can see it. Here comes the lion and he says, Simba. Yeah, but no, that's not what I'm looking for. Um, here's a giraffe, Twiga. And there's the elephant, Tembo. And here's um, a zebra or a zebra, a Pundamalia. And then Labrador Retriever. And he says, practically perfect in every way. <laughs> but still not quite what I need. And the Lord causes him to go into this deep sleep and in this beautiful poetry. Adam wakes up and he sees Eve for the first time and he goes, wow, would you look at that? Flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. She will be called woman, Isha, because she has been taken from man, Ish. And then, because of that, Paul says, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. I, don't you love the way the Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter 24 kind of unpacks what the purpose of this marriage is? First of all, it's unitive. Uh, there's a covenant of companionship. Whether children are ever born to a marriage or not, it is a covenant of two individuals, male and female, created in the Imago Dei, both of whom are equal in dignity and equal in giftedness and equal before the Lord in terms of their importance, who are called together in a complementary, synergistic relationship where their gifts brought together are greater than the sum total of their individual abilities. It's a covenant of companionship. Uh, it also, though, involves, of course, the scripture says, um, what Richard Pratt would call multiplying redeemed images of God. Marriage does involve children. And we're so grateful that we can rejoice with the Jones family and the Sturkel family when the Lord gives new covenant children or with families who have adopted children of their hearts. That's part of the call to marriage as well, when the Lord provides children. But there's a further dimension. 
Um, the Westminster Confession of Faith talks about it to prevent uncleanness. Uh, Tim Keller, in his wonderful book, The Meaning of Marriage, uh, flips it sort of around the topic of sanctification. Did you realize when you said your marriage vows that God was going to use your spouse as iron sharpens iron to file off your rough edges and make you into a man or woman of God. That's part of the call of marriage. It's part of the purpose of it. Uh, that even as we live life together in the broader community, we live life together in the context of our marriages and families, and God uses each of us to help be a means of sanctification through the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the other. Uh, Kathy and I uh, had been married 15 years when we discovered that we were completely opposite in every possible respect. Now, I, no, it's not that we hadn't discovered that, uh, but we didn't have any way to describe it. So mission to the world as part of the candidate process had us take the Myers-Briggs type indicator. Now, you psych majors out there are gonna tell me how uh, little objective empirical research there is to support the Myers-Briggs. I get that, but it has tremendous common grace insight. And so MTW uses it uh, to help put teams together and to help them understand how to work together. So it turned out that I am an off the chart introvert. I love being you, with you this morning and I'll love talking to you after the service and then I will go home and collapse. My wife who's at North Shore this morning will come home so excited. She spent the morning with all of her best friends talking about the things of God, the women she's discipling, and she'll be wired through the afternoon. She's an off-the-chart extrovert. I'm an introvert. We have had to learn how to manage that. Uh, she is someone that likes to get data. The more data, the better. One of her favorite phrases is, we don't know enough yet. Uh, I'm an intuitive. I just make decisions that are either spectacularly right or hopelessly wrong. Um, I like to make decisions based on immutable principles of justice and equity, like any good recovering lawyer would. Kathy is concerned about the way they impact the lives of people. And when it comes to closure, she was the sort of person whom in college would have a paper done a week ahead of time when I would be writing it the night before and rushing at the last minute to the professor's office to slide it under the door. Dr. Tate knows what those kinds of students are like, right? And so for 15 years, we had been clashing and had no way to describe this. And finally, we had vocabulary. And here's the extraordinary thing. We will be married 43 years next month. And over that time, God has used my wife to make me into a better person, to make me into a better disciple of Christ. I have, by God's grace, through the work of his spirit, become more like her, and she loves the Lord Jesus more than I do, and so that's a good thing. And he has used her as one of the means of my sanctification in this life. Beloved, God has given us the gift of marriage. It's a covenant of companionship. It's a way that we multiply redeemed images of God by bringing covenant children into the world and the church. Uh, it is also a means by which the Lord makes us 
into the likeness of Christ. Listen, now more than ever, you and I need to hold fast to the Bible's teaching on marriage. It's one man, one woman, mutually faithful for life. And if you're struggling this morning within your marriage, um, well, what did you expect? <laughs> now, I'm not trying to be funny. I mean, seriously. Uh, Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, when you marry someone, you promise to work on their issues. All of us have issues. We're all broken. We're all dysfunctional, just in a myriad of ways. Uh, you covenant and promise to work on those issues for the rest of your life. And they promise to work with you on yours. God, the Holy Spirit, is able to help us overcome the issues in our marriages. Sometimes we need help. You have godly elders. And soon in the Lord's time, you will have a godly under-shepherd. When you're struggling, don't struggle alone. If you can't resolve it with the Lord's help, get someone to get in the middle of it with you. To help you see it clearly. Uh, to help you keep those promises that you made before God and his people. Uh, there are godly Christian counselors throughout Chattanooga. So many resources. Don't walk away from your covenant promise. Because God has given you a gift in your spouse. You may not realize it. But he or she is going to be the means of making you into the likeness of Christ. Paul gives us a word about marriage, but he gives us a word to Christian wives as well. Uh, beginning in verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands. Let me just pause for a moment there. Uh, notice he doesn't say submit to every man on earth. He says voluntarily, freely, submit to your lover. Your lover who is supposed to love you as Christ loved the church. It's not because your husband has earned your respect. Very possibly he has not. But it's because of the relational status that you hold, that you have been given to him in marriage, and he has been given to you in marriage. And in that context, wives are called upon to submit with the motivation that it is as unto the Lord. It's a qualified duty. No woman is to submit to anything that is ungodly or abusive physically or emotionally. That is not what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about a voluntary recognition that your husband is the head of the family, just as Christ is the head of the church. And this means that he is responsible for the spiritual well-being and direction of the family. One day, brothers, you and I will stand before the Lord and give an account for the way we led our families. And our wives are called to recognize that and to support and encourage us in the carrying out of that spiritual mandate. Submission does not equal being a doormat. Uh, authority does not equal tyranny. Submission, rather, is recognizing that God has within the family ordained a structure and calls us within that structure, to love one another as we honor the Lord, so that for the wife, submitting to her husband becomes a way of showing honor to Christ. It's, a, it's an opportunity. It's a gift from God. 
to submit to her husband as she submits to the Lord. Paul calls us uh, to recognize that that is the case. Dare I say that within that context of submission, there is a team relationship in view. If a wife is going to encourage her husband in the carrying out of his duties as head of the house, uh, that's going to mean that there are going to be times when she's going to have to, in the Lord, bring things to his attention that need to be changed. Uh, Tim Keller tells the story of planting Redeemer Presbyterian Church. Uh, he was working 70 hours a week. Uh, they were recently married. Kathy Keller said to him, you are destroying our relationship. You need to back off. You need to, to come home. We need to be together as a family. And Tim said, honey, just a few more months. Just give me four more months. Except four months became eight months, and then it became 12. And one day, Tim came home, and he heard a crash on the balcony. And he went out to the balcony of their apartment, and there was Kathy sitting on the ground with a hammer and their wedding china. And she picked it up and said, this is what you're doing to our marriage. And she smashed that plate. You're not listening to me. And Tim said, you've got my attention now. He cut down on the floor. And they talked about it, and he promised in the Lord's strength to trust the Lord with the church and to spend time with his wife. And then just on an afterthought, he said, honey, what are we going to do about your dishes? She said, oh, that was an extra. <laughs> I'd already broken the cup. I just wanted to see if it would get your attention. <laughs> Sometimes submitting means speaking up, calling your husband to greater faithfulness before the Lord. This is not a question of superiority or inferiority. It's a team effort. Husband and wife called together in synergy. Equal dignity, equal worth before the Lord. Different roles within the marriage. But Paul's longest word is reserved for the husbands. And beloved, it is a sobering one. Verse 25, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I Just think about that, brothers, for a minute, what Paul is saying to us. We are to love our wives freely, with agape love, self-sacrificing love. It is to resemble the love that Jesus had for his church. What kind of love was that? Well, in John 13, uh, he takes off his robes as a rabbi, and as their teacher and master, and he wraps a towel around his waist as a slave, a doulos, and bows and washes their stinky, smelly feet. He gets into the warp and the woof of their lives and serves them as the chief servant of all. When he goes to the cross later that week, uh, he lays down his life as the good shepherd who does it voluntarily, uh, brothers, that means at the very least, you and I are called daily to serve our wives as Christ serves the church. And we are called to lay down our lives for them, maybe not literally, but in a thousand 
small and great ways as the Holy Spirit brings it to our attention that we would make our mission to provide self-sacrificial love and leadership in our families so that our lives see, our wives, sorry, see Jesus evident in our lives. Is that hard? No, that's not hard. That's impossible apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. So you wake up in the morning and you say, good morning, Holy Spirit. Don't know what you've got planned for me today, but I pray that you will fill me and enable me to lay down my life for my spouse, for my children, and for my king. And you go through the day expectantly that he's going to show you places and ways. That may mean turning off the game. Uh, that may mean not going on the fishing trip. Uh, that could very possibly mean uh, that you turn your attention not inward towards your own needs, but outward towards your wife's needs. No, I, I just told you an untruth. It doesn't may mean that. It absolutely means that. That's what we're called to. We're to love our spouses as Christ loved the church. And Paul says, but don't you get it? Uh, you're to love her as you love your own body. Let me ask you, <laughs> you planning to go without lunch today? Well, maybe if you're fasting, okay, but I bet not dinner, and certainly not all week. You're going to feed yourself, aren't you? Uh, you're going to make sure you get enough sleep, uh, that you have what you need to be healthy? Uh, well, of course, Paul says, well, then why on earth wouldn't you think that you would owe the same duty? to the person who is nearest and closest to you, the greatest gift apart from your salvation that God will ever give you. You love her like that. You nourish her intellectually. You help her grow in her gifts. You help her grow spiritually. You do whatever it takes uh, to help her mature into the likeness of Jesus Christ. You do it daily. You do it continuously. You do it lovingly. You do it without complaining. You do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. You nourish her because you cherish her. And if you're struggling to do that, the Holy Spirit says, just ask me, and I'll give you the love you don't have. I'll give you the grace that you require. I will bring healing and reconciliation within your marriage. Just ask. Just ask, Paul says, listen, your marriage relationship is a mystery. It's a picture of the church. No, we're not Roman Catholic. We don't say it's a sacrament. It's a covenantal relationship. But it is one that resembles the relationship between Christ, who is head of the church and his people. And that's so important. Listen, people will hear what we say, excuse me, but what they're really truly going to do is watch how we live. Uh, there was a missionary couple working in North Africa that had a barn burner of a fight one day in front of their housemaid. Um, they were yelling at each other, and the housemaid just looked horrified, and she fled from the room. And finally, it was over, and they repented, and they apologized, and they came together and reconciled and hugged and wept. And then they said, we've blown it two years of ministry here in North Africa, and the one person we thought we were getting through to now won't believe a word we said. But the next morning, the housemaid was at the door, and she said, I want to become a Christian. 
And they said, why on earth would you want to become a Christian? You saw us fight. Yeah, she said, but I never saw anyone make up before. I never saw reconciliation. And if your God can do that, then he can do anything. I want to follow him. Uh, brothers, you and I need to be chief repenters. We need to be the first to forgive and the first to seek forgiveness. We need to love well because we've been well loved. We need to forgive because we've been forgiven. We need to present our wives as holy and blameless before the Lord. It's a picture of what Christ is doing in the church. And it's not something you have to do. It's something you get to do. One of my heroes is Robertson McQuilkin, uh, past president of Columbia International University. I didn't know if you remember the story. It's been about 25 years, but at the height of his career, president of one of the most significant evangelical um, Christian colleges in the country, he stepped down from the presidency to care for his wife, Muriel, who had developed an early onset of Alzheimer's. And you can go online and just Google it and watch the one minute and 47 second testimony where he shares with the community there that he is stepping down as president to take care of his wife. And in it, he says this, he says, I don't, I mean, he, he goes through all the things you would expect. He said, she took care of me for 40 years. If I took care of her for 40 years, I, I could never repay the debt. He said, I made a promise in sickness and health. But here's what he ends with. He says, I don't have to care for her. I get to care for the greatest gift God has ever given me. Some years after that, he came and spoke at our church up in St. Louis and I had the opportunity to take him out to lunch on the way to the airport. And I said, Dr. McQuilkin, what uh, did you do this morning? And he said, I thought about Muriel, the precious memories God has given. Beloved, that's how God wants us to think about marriage. Is it difficult? No, it's impossible, apart from his grace. But with the Holy Spirit, with the help and encouragement of brothers and sisters in the church, it can be one of the greatest testimonies to the world that Jesus is alive and he's coming again. Pray with me. Almighty God and Father, for those marriages that are strong, we pray that you would continue to strengthen them and use them as a means of blessing among their communities and within their families. Father, for those marriages that are struggling, we pray that you would, by your spirit, break down the hardness of heart and bring repentance and healing and reconciliation, and that you would use brothers and sisters within the body of Christ to help make that so. And Father, for all of us, we pray that as we look at the institution of marriage, the calling that you have placed on many of our lives to marriage, that we would see that as a picture of the relationship between Jesus and the church. And that it would cause us to long for his return, even as we watch and wait and share the good news. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's respond in song to the sermon by singing hymn.